0: Hello, and welcome to Building Better, a podcast about the cities and human spaces we build worldwide that asks, how can we build better? My name is Christoph Lindner, and as well as being your host for this podcast, I'm the Dean here at UCL's Bartlett Faculty of the Built Environment. In each episode, I sit down with experts from the Bartlett and from the built environment sector to explore new ideas and solutions for some of the big issues that affect our daily lives, our societies, and our planet. In the final episode of this series, we are going to be discussing the housing market. In the UK right now, we are in a cost-of-living crisis, with renting and renters' rights in a particularly precarious situation. The number of people sleeping rough is higher than pre-pandemic, with many experiencing homelessness for the first time. And a huge part of this problem is the housing market and how it operates. And so today, I have invited two guests to talk about the housing market and potential alternatives. I would like to welcome Samir Giraj, a writer at The New Statesman and a commissioning editor at Hyphen. Samir is the co-author of The Rent Trap a critical account of the private rental sector. And his work focuses on social affairs, housing, health, and immigration. He is an unofficial historian of the Bullring, a.k.a. Cardboard City, and for the past five years has been collecting interviews, photos, documents, and materials about the UK's largest and most culturally iconic community of people who are homeless. And my second guest today is Saffron Woodcraft, a Principal Research Fellow at the Bartlett's Institute for Global Prosperity. Saffron is an anthropologist working with citizen scientists and community organizations to understand lived experiences of prosperity and inequality. Her research focuses on changing the evidence that policymakers use to make decisions about urban regeneration. Saffron's research projects include UCL's new Citizen Science Academy, as well as Prosperity in East London 2021-2031, to which is a longitudinal study that uses prosperity measures designed by citizen scientists to monitor regeneration impacts in 15 different neighborhoods. Our conversation today is going to have two halves. In the first half, we want to think about the problem, and in the second half, we want to explore the solution. So we're going to begin by asking the big question of what is wrong with the housing market? And as a way into that really large question, Samir, could I just ask you, what does the housing market look like today and what kinds of experiences are people having in it?
1: So I'd say the housing market today for for many people looks expensive, chaotic, poor quality and is a, a great source of stress for people.
0: These are not good adjectives to describe the housing market. Is the picture out there really so bleak?
1: I would say, you know, for example, in private rented housing, costs are very high, standards are very low. In social housing, there's a shortage of supply, and there's a whole issue around conditions at the moment. And within owner occupation, again, costs are very high. And people are currently kind of facing um, higher like mortgage mortgage increases, and you've still got the kind of the fallout from the the cladding issue in in housing as well.
0: That is a scary picture, because what you're describing are issues around the quality of space, issues around the cost of housing, issues about safety of, of, of spaces, but also issues around policy and laws none of which seems to be particularly concerned about the well-being of the renter. Saffron, to bring you into this, I want to hear a little bit about what you've been observing and seeing with the communities that you work with.
2: Yeah, so I think those two words, housing market, sum up the major challenges for me, and I think encapsulate the stories and the experiences that I hear from residents in East London. So over the past, you know, 30 or 40 years, we've got used to the financialization of housing in the UK. And policymakers tend to talk about housing um, and housing development as a driver of economic growth. Housing, for those of us that are lucky enough to own a home, is a major source of wealth. But when we talk about a housing crisis and affordability... What people talk about in their everyday lives is very different to the underlying assumptions that are in policy and in planning, that house prices will keep on rising, for example. Um, So there's a disconnect that I see. And in the work that I'm doing with citizen scientists, where they're talking about their own experiences and the experiences in their communities, that disconnect is very evident. And it's not just about affordability, and it's not just about the supply of housing. I think what I see and what I hear is a lack of attention, I think, to the importance of housing to our emotional well-being, to local communities. Uh, It's kind of wider societal contribution. So we've spent so long talking about and thinking about housing as a market I feel like we've moved away from this bigger question, which is what should housing be doing for us as individuals, communities and as a society?
0: So I think this is about to reveal uh, what a superficial person I sometimes am. But while you were talking, Saffron, it reminded me of the scene in the fight club when the main character is sitting his, <laughs> in his apartment looking around and every piece of furniture comes from Ikea and he has this kind of realization that he's living in an Ikea catalog. Is because in a way, what you're describing is how the home, uh, which is supposed to be a place of, of, of refuge, literally, has been turned into something else, a commodity, a repository of value of capital. And that financialization of something that's really at the core of human society and living together as humans feels like it's very much intention, almost irreconcilable the home as a place of refuge, and the home as a a financial product. Um, How did the UK get into that situation? If we look at a city like London, over the last several hundred years, there have been waves of investment and building, trying to create housing for wide swaths of the population, but somehow in the 20th century, and now more acutely in the 21st century, we seem to be moving away from a vision of, of housing as something for people towards or maybe even embracing, reluctantly, I don't know, a vision of housing as 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 a place to park capital? How did we get there? Samir, any insights?
1: Well, I mean, one of the key dates for that is the beginning of, of the Thatcher government in, in 1979. Uh, so up to that point, maybe around uh, in 1979, one in three Households was living in social housing, which is de definancialized, the rents are um, affordable and it was uh, effectively security of, of tenure. There were also rent controls in place in private rented housing. And between the, the right to buy introduced in the early eighties and the scrapping of rent controls at the end of the nineteen eighties, these two things kind of like ushered in a, I suppose, deregulation of uh, of and privatization of a significant chunk. Of of housing in the UK combined with in- increased access to credit, and then in the kind of 90s you see the kind of emergence of the buy to let mortgage, and then like the the kind of the cultural side of of home ownership becoming like the um, the preeminent thing, like all the home makeover kind of type shows, and these kind of like products being marketed as like this this being something that shows your shows your value and success as a as a person or as a family is in the specific items of your of, of a home rather than it being for a purpose, which is the kind of like well being of your of your family, its health, and being a place of, kind of like education and community.
0: And the situation you're describing, that, that cultural history of, of housing is connected to the UK. But that larger trend of financializing housing is something that we have seen all across the world and the reasons that drive it, different governments, different policies. But behind all of it, there is the same trend that's happening around the world. And I I just wonder, is it too alarmist to say that now as we come out of the pandemic, our cities are more unaffordable, more unhealthy, more inequitable than they have ever been? Is that overly dramatic
1: i mean i th- i think th- th- what was interesting about the pandemic was there was a brief like respite in the in a in a trend that had been emerging for for quite some time in in cities and you know i can speak to you know, maybe the experience of uh, of like kind of like global, global north kind of countries, but yes, there was this trend of cities in particular becoming more expensive um high levels of inequality that the economy being concentrated. There as well, like you look at the uh, like regional inequalities in in the UK, they've widened significantly between London and the rest the rest of of, of England, definitely.
0: And Saffron, w- w- what do you think? Are cities more unequal now than before the pandemic?
2: I would say so. Yes. So I think if you look at UK cities, but also at data about international cities too, you can see there's been growing inequalities, and I think the pandemic really foregrounded. Inequalities that uh, low income or more deprived communities in the UK have been experiencing for a very long time. But those issues really came to the fore and highlighted how things like digital exclusion, food insecurity, energy insecurity are really closely linked to the housing uh, system that we have, the tenures of housing that people occupy, the particular places where people live. So I I see that the pandemic definitely foregrounded those inequalities and made it very evident what an important role housing plays in being able to access uh, some of those services, but also, as you said, you know, have a refuge and somewhere to withdraw, but also for home to be a space where you can study, where you can continue to work throughout the pandemic, for example. So There were a lot of issues that I think relate to urban resilience and the resilience of cities that actually play out in the home that we've seen really come to the fore over the last couple of years.
0: There's something really heartbreaking, though, about the picture that you describe, and this is very different to the housing crisis that you see in countries like the U.S. back around the time of the global financial crisis. What you're actually describing, Saffron, is a situation where people are stretching and struggling just to have the basics of a home that they need. And this home, by living in it, by having a home, is actually bankrupting them. And I'm really glad that you brought up not just the the cost of housing, but all the things that go into housing. Because one of the challenges we're seeing now with the cost of living crisis in the UK, that the challenge is not just affording a home, but once you're in the home, it's being able to afford heat food to, to bring into the table, transportation to get to work or school or to, to a doctor. So it feels like the challenge of making housing affordable has actually become bigger in the last year or so, and it's become much more multidimensional. It's not just about the brick and mortars of where you live. It's how that connects in to energy systems, education, food, and all that kind of stuff. Where is this headed? What, what kind of path do you think we're on?
2: I would really like to see that this moment is an opportunity to start a new kind of conversation about housing and the role that housing plays in societies. And I want to be optimistic that now is a good moment to have that conversation. And I think in the work that I do, which is often with local authorities who have a responsibility for housing and planning in local communities, then there is definitely a new kind of awareness, a new interest in exactly what you were just describing thinking about housing as part of a secure livelihood as opposed to seeing housing as uh, distinct from say labor market policy locally. so I think it's incredibly important at this at this moment as we're coming out of the pandemic but also facing huge issues in an urban context like um, climate adaptation, that there's an opportunity for a different kind of conversation about what housing does for society and a conversation that involves um, citizens directly in thinking about what some of those solutions might be. And thereby there's an opportunity for a wider then set of conversations with developers, with housing associations, with those engineers and sustainability scientists that can perhaps address some of the issues that we were just talking about around energy security or food security at a very local level. So I think it would be wonderful, for example, to bring together a group of communities and architects and developers and say, let's design energy costs out of housing that we're building over the next 20 or 30 years. You know, how might we do that and think about that as part of an effort to innovate and create more resilient communities where housing is supporting livelihood security rather than keeping people in this situation where they're overextended and stressed, and therefore not able to work or not able to study.
0: How do we bring local authorities and national government into this? Because it feels to me that unless we have the support and the participation of our councils and our government, it's going to be very hard to radically remake the picture. Samir, what do you think on that question?
1: Well, interestingly, I, I was a local council employee and a local councillor for for four years, so I have a, a little bit of insight into this. I, I think actually a lot of councils are are quite interested in how to actually deliver the the housing that that their residents need. The problems I think are at that more kind of national level. So certainly under you know, under conservative governments, the restrictions around planning have often been kind of you know used as the Reason as to as to why there hasn't been why there hasn't been building and and there's all uh, there's like lots of noise about it but they're kind of caught politically between people who somewhat benefit from there being a shortage of housing so you know, certain types of developers, landowners, and homeowners as a as a kind of political category, people like to see their assets increase in value given that we've commodified housing and on the other side they they're meant to be committed to this kind of like the market meeting meeting demand, and so they shouldn't be having these kind of concentrations of power out there actually kind of like dictating what what is happening. And going back to kind of um, Saffron's point around like how many of the housing issues we're talking about have, have affected poorer people for a long time. It's a somewhat cynical point, but it's, it's one that's been made, which is that you know MPs started to take notice of the, the housing crisis as soon as their kids started experiencing it. You know, like as soon as a generation starts to see their kids can't have the standard of living that they did, they will start to kind of ask questions of that. But whether they, as a political category of people, you know, will actually do something about it, I think is a a big challenge because it because it kind of caught in between this thing of having created a lot of assets out of housing and then having to sacrifice that or erode that to meet the needs of uh, younger people, poorer people.
0: We ought to uh, use part of our conversation to uh, start imagining alternatives and uh, thinking about what a fair and inclusive and affordable housing future could look like. If you could design a housing, let's call it a system, not a market, or a housing environment, (laughs) um, what what would the ideal version be?
1: So, I mean, I would... I would imagine something whereby quality is 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 high in terms of you know space standards in terms of meeting the social educational emotional environmental needs of pe- single people people whatever kind of like family arrangements or kind of living arrangements that they choose to have, and then you know together would be like the yeah the, the services around them being in place you know again like schools work leisure. And, you know, kind of like really kind of like, yeah, basing it on that idea is that idea of both both need, but also like like luxury for, for for want of a better phrase. I, th- I think one of the, the key issues is that um, housing has retreated from this idea that especially poor working class people deserve as good as anyone else. And that was a that was part of the original vision of, of social housing was we, we were going to create really excellent places to live, whereas we're somewhat stuck at the moment in an idea of sufficiency. So I think, you know, this idea of luxury and luxury being meeting those higher needs.
0: Yeah, I love the way that you describe housing in conjunction with services and thinking about the environment that surrounds housing, because in a way, it seems, Samir, that what you're talking about is a future that is about community. And it's, a, it's more of a, a comprehensive vision of not just what housing should be, but how that should connect to the rest of, of society. What about you, Saffron, the ideal vision of Housing Future?
2: I really like Samir's idea of luxury. I think that's a really nice place to start, not with a low baseline, but to think about you know, what, what role does housing play in our individual lives, in our communities and in society. And one of the most exciting ideas I've come across recently is the idea of universal basic services and thinking that housing could be something that is a universal basic service. And that we think about designing neighbourhoods, designing types of housing where people are able to access housing as a service. And instead of, you know, spending 40, 50, 60 percent of their monthly household income on trying to meet uh, housing costs, whether that's mortgage debt or or rent. To think about much lower, much more genuinely affordable housing costs or potentially uh, no cost housing in, in some senses. And instead thinking about then how they could use uh, the rest of their income in other ways. So I think that's an that's an idea that's really exciting. I also am really interested in the idea of thinking about housing and the services that go into housing and designing out the costs around those too. So I think there's really exciting potential to think about different kinds of heating, different kinds of food systems that are very local, that's support individual and community resilience but then also potentially create opportunities for community building as well either through community enterprises like community power or thinking about how green space public space local urban food systems bring people together in different kinds of ways what i'd like to see is a kind of a system a more holistic a more holistic way of thinking about housing and the points of connection it creates between citizens but also then to other parts of the community and government
0: yeah that's a pretty radical vision but i think really compelling as well and that word community also features uh, quite prominently in your vision and and i wonder in, in a way samir and saffron what you've both been describing is a housing future that is much more about collaboration than than competition and it feels like the current housing market is all about competition and maybe that's one of the things that we need to move away from. So let's start to bring reality back into the picture. So we've got a long-term ideal future that we could potentially achieve. What are some of the steps that we need to take right now if we're going to move away from the current housing market and start moving in the right direction? Samir
1: In my opinion, one of the key things that brings about change is is social movement. And politics and politicians often formalize what has been, what is actually kind of happening um, in, a, in a widespread way in, in civil society. So, I mean, there are examples out there of organizations and movements trying to kind of decommodify housing. I was really impressed by doing. The research for the for the book with the uh, student housing co-ops in the uk again they're very prominent in the in the us but not so much in the uk and the, all the uh, these guys had a, a vision that, about it being in the community It wasn't just kind of cheap housing it was being part of a, a long-term part of the community and similarly you have kind of movements around community land trusts which i think kind of like uh, uh, are interesting and have picked up kind of i think kind of quite a lot in perhaps more kind of like rural and suburban kind of um areas where there's often been kind of quite a lot of resistance to to new housing so i think those are those were two things that i found kind of like quite interesting in terms of like new things happening and then you have kind of you know rental organizations movements to protect social housing um as well
0: so social movements, co-ops, community land trusts, uh, all of these seem that they're about collective action and thinking collectively about the future. Saffron, what are some of the first steps you would recommend to start moving towards a better housing future?
2: So I agree with all of those suggestions. I think community land trusts in particular are a model that has a lot of potential. But I think to go in a slightly different direction, uh, one of the things that I would do immediately is have citizens, communities, communities, Planners, housing officers and local authorities, for example, working together to develop different kinds of knowledge and different kinds of evidence about what the local issues and challenges are. And this is very closely linked to the work that I do with citizen science and citizen science as a methodology. But I can see through the work we've been doing in East London for a number of years, transformational changes in thinking an understanding about local problems that have come from these kinds of dialogue and this kind of research with citizens and policymakers working together now starting to filter into the conversations that are happening with local authorities around housing, around livelihoods around community resilience. So I think this is a really important part of the picture because I see quite often conversations around housing and housing provision and what or is or isn't affordable have a tendency to kind of become very binary. And I think this different kinds of knowledge, different kinds of evidence bring nuance to the situation but also, they build the capacity of residents and planners and decision makers to work together and to come up with different kinds of solutions that perhaps they wouldn't do as individual groups.
0: I detect in both of your answers uh, a certain level of optimism. Would that be fair to say that, that there's some optimism in your voices that we can start to achieve more of these things?
1: I think I think so. You know, the the situation is quite untenable at the at the moment. I think as well the you know the challenges that the current government face around around housing are are huge and yet you know like we um, we, we had a budget on Wednesday where where housing wasn't mentioned so I think there's a real kind of pressure building up in terms of uh, yeah again quality affordability the actual kind of people realizing that their that their housing can be different and should be different
2: Yep, yeah, I think so. I'm optimistic in the sense that uh, one of the projects I work on involves London's growth boroughs. So this is four local authorities in East London. And uh, together, the growth boroughs have adopted a new inclusive economy strategy which they will be rolling out over the next decade. And they have taken the work that's been done by citizen scientists and residents and community groups around livelihood security and put that at the heart of their inclusive economy strategy, which means a local understanding of the importance of housing, a local understanding of what affordability actually means to low-income households in East London, and that relationship between good work, stable work, good housing, stable housing, and the key local services are going to be at the heart of that thinking moving forward. And that's come as a result of the kind of dialogues that I was just describing. So I'm optimistic that there is, uh, you know, there is a new kind of thinking emerging around that this holistic thinking about housing.
0: I have one more question that I want to ask, and it's the question that we we end every episode with. Looking to the future, what is one thing you think we should do so we can build better?
2: What I would like to see is the Bartlett launch a new transdisciplinary planning, architecture, and placemaking program to educate the next generation of urbanists. So we need to bring together the social sciences and built environment professions in a new kind of way, I think, that also brings citizens and communities into the mix. So what we see at the Bartlett, which is what makes the Bartlett brilliant, is, you know a huge amount of attention to co-production and community. But to bring that into one program where we've got a different kind of planner, a different kind of architect, a different kind of developer thinking about these kinds of big, integrated questions going forward, I think would be fantastic.
0: Well, there you go. That's a project for us at the Bartlett. Samir, what about you? What is something you think we need to do to build better?
1: I think I'd I'd add to to Saffron's suggestion to, and talk about you know like again like educating and training people in in how to how to organize how to build a movement. Um, I think that's something that is that the US has traditionally you know, been very being very good at, whereas that that tradition in the UK has somewhat been. Somewhat been lost over the years, but has but has been been around. Has been crucial in, for example, like the UK's history of of uh, rent control started from social movements in in Glasgow and in Scotland. So you know, understanding what the role you can play in building a social movement is.
0: Well, that fits very nicely with UCL's um, radical spirit of uh, disruptive thinking. And uh, on that note, let me thank both of my guests for joining me today. You've been listening to Building Better, the Bartlett podcast. This podcast was presented by myself, Christoph Lindner, and brought to you by the Bartlett, UCL's faculty of the built environment. It was edited by Karis Bradley and featured music from Blue Dot Sessions. I was joined today by Samir Jiraj and Saffron Woodcraft. And if you would like to hear more of these podcasts, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk slash Bartlett slash Building Better. And of course, you can follow us at the Bartlett UCL. See you next time.